As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. If you removed all the repeat offenders from the road, 77% of these crashes would theoretically still happen. That's staggering. It's a huge number. And it means that if you only address repeat offenses, you're not going to solve a big, big chunk of the problem. From the Fox 6 Studios, this is Open Record. We're investigative reporters breaking down the big stories, what it took to get them, taking you behind the scenes. It's the stuff we couldn't tell you on TV. On this episode, we know that drinking and driving is against the law, but should it be a crime? The reason Wisconsin still stands out from every other state in America. Hello, everyone. I'm Amanda St. Hilaire here with Jenna Sachs. Hi. And Brian Polson. Hello, Amanda. So let's face it, we all enjoy cold beer, glass of wine from time to time, and no better place to do it than Wisconsin. My husband and I discovered that when we moved here a little more than a year ago. It's a state with a long, proud history of both producing and consuming alcohol. Unfortunately, Wisconsin also has a reputation as a state with a drinking problem, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. A recent study published in the American Journal of Preventative Medicine found that one out of every four Wisconsin adults considers themselves to be a binge drinker. One in four, 25%. That carries its own public health concerns. But it's when binge drinkers get behind the wheel that it becomes especially dangerous and all too often deadly. He just hands me this note that basically says, your daughter's been in a car accident. And I don't remember any of that. We literally just sat there and cried and held her hand. That is Terry Lannon and her daughter, Sam. Now, when Sam was 16, she was nearly killed by a drunk driver who was going the wrong way on a divided highway on a dark October night near Milton, Wisconsin. Sam miraculously survived. Her best friend, unfortunately, Hannah Church, was driving and was killed instantly. The drunk driver in this case was 28-year-old Robert Frank. He also died. But the thing that really stood out for Terry and her daughter, Sam, is that had Robert Frank survived the crash himself, he would have been charged with homicide because of Hannah's death. And yet, had he been pulled over before the crash, had no one died, he would not have been charged with a crime at all. Because in Wisconsin, drunk driving is not a criminal offense until you've been caught twice. I think that um, many people view a first offense as just a mistake that can happen to anyone. It shouldn't matter whether it's the first time or the sixth time. Why is it so hard to deal with the first offense? Uh, because that's, that's what would actually make the difference. It would actually change the culture. Wisconsin's the only state in America where the first offense is not a crime. So, Brian, why is that? Well, I can- uh- yeah, obviously, a long history in Wisconsin of, uh, you know, brewers. You have Miller Brewing here. You have the old Paps Brewery. And, and there's beer is obviously uh, deeply ingrained in our culture. 
there, a lot of people will talk about the German heritage in this area. So we go a long way back with beer. And for whatever reason, over the years, this has been one state that has resisted making the first drunk driving offense a crime. Many, many years ago, there wasn't a standard of 0.08 for uh, drunk driving. It was 0.10. And I think even prior to that, uh, it, there may not have been a standard at all. But as uh, the push came from the federal level to lower the level that qualifies as drunken driving to 0.08, the threat was, if you don't do this, we're going to take away your highway money. So states all across the country, including Wisconsin, lowered that level to 0.08. And that's where it's become more and more controversial because there are those in the restaurant and beverage industry who say 0.08 could be, depending on the person, depending on their size, could be a couple of drinks at a fish fry. Um, could be an old-fashioned after dinner. Um, maybe that one extra sip of an old-fashioned pushes you over the edge, and potentially now you are making a criminal out of someone who's just an otherwise social drinker, who doesn't have a problem, who isn't a real threat to public safety. On the other side of that, though, you have many people who say, it doesn't matter whether you are routinely a binge drinker or a dangerous driver, you get to .08, you're impaired, and you are dangerous on the road, even if it was just that one extra sip. If you hit .08, you are drunk and you shouldn't be on the road at all. But this isn't a new subject in no, Wisconsin. People have not. been talking about this for so long. I remember doing stories about this 12 years ago, and they could be just as relevant today. Why aren't things evolving or changing? Well, and, and interestingly enough, I came to Fox 6 News 15 years ago from, uh, I was in Iowa, well, in Missouri prior to that, Iowa working, and I grew up in Missouri. And, and in these other places, the first offense was naturally a criminal offense. So it was a surprise to me. A lot about drunk driving laws in Wisconsin are a surprise to people who come here from other places. So when I first got here, I started to do a number of stories on drunken driving in Wisconsin because it really stood out to me that, wow, I can't believe it's this way. I think for so many people who've lived here and grown up here, maybe it's complacency, maybe it's just this is the way it's always been. Um, but a fresh set of eyes. We've talked about that before here, Amanda. Yes. You've come here. That fresh set of eyes sometimes can look at a problem and say, well, why is it that way? So I started doing stories. But what I found early on was the stories that got the most traction with lawmakers, policymakers, were the ones that focused on repeat offenders. Because there's no question Wisconsin has a problem with people who have serious alcohol problems, and therefore they do this again and again and again. And don't get me wrong, that's a huge problem in this state. But that's one that over the 15 years I've been here, lawmakers have really tried to address. When I first started doing these stories, ignition interlock devices mm. were only ordered for severe repeat offenders. And even then, some of the earliest stories I did showed that those orders weren't followed. And for people who don't know what ignition interlock is? That, that is a device that is installed in a vehicle that you have to blow into. It measures the alcohol in your breath before the ignition will start. And early on in uh, when I was here, that was a, a novel device. It was new. Those They're well known around the country now, and research has shown they're effective. People who have these devices installed tend to develop habits of driving without having had drinks because it's the only way they can operate their cars. That habit becomes something that then continues after the device is gone. So research has shown they work. But at the time when I first did these stories, even the severe repeat offenders who were ordered to get them weren't getting them and the courts weren't following up. So we started to see the legislature pass laws that said, okay, let's get tougher on that. Then they expanded the use of interlocks to all repeat offenders, even just the second offense. And now, first-time offenders with a high blood alcohol concentration, 0.15 or higher, people who are almost or at twice the legal limit or higher, 
get these devices or are supposed to get them. One of the problems has been if you are 0.15 or 0.16, the measurements, the science behind those measurements can be challenged. And oftentimes what happens is instead of risking a trial, district attorneys will plead it down to a lower level BAC so that you don't need the interlock. They get a conviction. You've got the OWI in your record. So in the end, what's happening is in a lot of cases, it's only repeat offenders who are getting these devices. So I want to talk about that because going back to the argument that you just laid out, that for some people, 0.08, if they're gonna, if it's their first time offense, it might just be an extra sip of alcohol, an extra drink at a fish fry, and lawmakers seem really intent on not punishing those people. Other states do punish those people, but even though it is a crime for the first offense, you can still plea it down, you can still eventually get it expunged from your record in exchange for a certain amount of community service hours. In other states that have made this a crime, it is still not a life-ruining event to get caught for the first offense. So what's the holdup here? Well, there uh, other states don't have, or at least you'll hear people say that other states don't have one thing we have here in Wisconsin and that is a very powerful and influential Tavern League. The Tavern League of Wisconsin was founded in, I think it was 1935, maybe 25. All I know is this was after Prohibition. Shortly after Prohibition, um, it was formed. And obviously, this was a time when America, in general, was celebrating the reintroduction of legal alcohol into society. And the tavern and around the state of Wisconsin, obviously, there's a huge network of tavern owners, restaurant owners who serve alcohol. And and, and you know, Wisconsin Wisconsinites love their beer. They love alcohol. And you look at we have a, a, a baseball team named the Milwaukee Brewers. I mean, this is a community that celebrates alcohol, and that's not bad. It's when that alcohol is consumed in large quantities and then taken out on the road that it becomes a problem. But that Tavern League has, over many, many decades, gained a lot of influence around the state. Um, in, and the question that's always been out there is how much of that is just because they're these really powerful, influential lobbyists who spend a lot of money on campaign contributions, and how much is it that they simply reflect the populace? that across Wisconsin, especially in the Northwoods and outstate Wisconsin, where people love their corner taverns and they say, hey, government, you know, stay out of my business. I think that's a, a lot of why the law has been uh, a difficult one to move here. But then at the same time, we have a young woman who lost her life and we're very hard on those people who end up killing someone or hurting sure. someone. But at the same time, the, the offense, had they not hurt someone, would have been a slap on the wrist. Right. And sometimes say. whether you hurt someone or kill someone is just, it's pure dumb luck. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's one of the things that always stood out to me about this is the offense or the actions of the driver, of the drunk driver, are the same until someone is killed. But the punishment is very, very different. It's not a crime until someone dies and then suddenly it's homicide. So there are some who have argued that in the cases of a death that, well, you know, that that person wouldn't have even been charged with a crime do they really deserve to go to prison for a long time just because of the result? And that's another wow. issue that's come about because there is a bill pending this year that would make a five-year mandatory minimum prison sentence a requirement when someone dies in a drunk driving crash. But we're finding there are cases where people are getting maybe a year in jail um, for a drunk driving homicide. There's no other kind of homicide where you're going to get a year in jail. 
but a drunk driving homicide, sometimes it happens. And I think that has a lot to do with why, because the distinction between no crime at all to suddenly homicide is an immediate jump. And you found some really jarring numbers about first-time offense OWI linked to fatalities. Yeah, and this was something that I wanted to, to see if, if we could find the data, because when I mentioned the Tavern League. The Tavern League and then a lot of lawmakers who say they want to get tough on drunk drivers will point to the scourge of repeat offenders in the state of Wisconsin. As I said, it is a problem when you have seven, eight, nine-time offenders, ten-time offenders. We've done many stories on this. The number one question people ask is, how do you get to a tenth offense? Well, it starts with not doing hardly anything at all about the first offense, and then only small minor things maybe about the second and the third. That's how you get there. Or, or short prison sentences for the fifth and sixth offense, things like that. So these legislators focus on repeat offenders, but it still leaves the question, who's killing people in drunk driving crashes? And I wanted to know how many of these fatal crashes involve repeat offenders. When there's a fatal crash that involves a repeat offender, it gets a lot of media attention. There's outrage, and understandably, justifiably so. When a four- or five-time offender kills someone, the natural question is, why weren't they stopped sooner? But I requested data from the Wisconsin Department of Transportation saying, look, do you guys track when there's a fatality or when there's a serious injury crash that involves alcohol? Did the person who'd been drinking have any prior offenses? Do they track it? And the answer is yes, they do. They've been tracking it for years. This research hasn't been published so far as I've seen for many, many years, though. So the DOT actually supplied me 28 years of data wow. going back to 1991 that showed 77% of fatal drunk driving crashes in Wisconsin involved drivers who had no prior offenses. Hmm. So if you removed all the repeat offenders from the road, 77% of these crashes would theoretically still happen. That's staggering. It's a huge number. And it means that if you only address repeat offenses, you're not going to solve a big, big chunk of the problem. So you mentioned at least one or two potential laws that are being considered right now. Are there more out there? Do we foresee change coming? Is this partisan, bipartisan? Well, this seems to happen every few years that there's a slate of drunk driving bills that are introduced. And most of them never get very far uh, a few do. The last real big push was in 2009, so 10 years ago, where a number of bills were passed. Uh, repeat offenders, I believe, on the fourth offense, it was made a felony. Now there's a push to try to potentially make the third offense a felony. There's a push to get interlocks required. So the bills that are there, there's a dozen pending this year, among them bills that would require uh, interlocks for all drunk drivers, even on the first offense, regardless of BAC. Um, that's another one that's controversial with the Tavern League and some other groups that oppose this because they say you shouldn't be focusing on social drinkers, focus on the repeaters. Um, there are bills that would require at least an 18-month prison sentence for the fifth and sixth offense. And some people would hear that and say 18 months? We're, we're, they're not getting that already? And in a lot of cases, they're not. And there's another bill, as I mentioned, that would uh, require a five-year minimum sentence for homicide. Some lesser discussed ones, there is one bill that focuses on the first offense that looks like it has promise. And that is one that would require the drunk driver to actually appear in court. As it stands right now, because the first offense is a civil offense, it's like a traffic ticket. You can send your attorney to court. You don't even have to go yourself. And there are some who say the, the, the message that is sent by not even having to appear in court is one that says this isn't a big deal. If you at least make the person go face a judge, that it will have potentially, they hope, the effect of, okay, 
this is serious. I had to go before a judge with a drunk driving charge or offense. Um, it's not a charge, I guess, because it's not criminal. That one looks like it has some promise. It passed a Senate committee and is going to go to the full Senate, and that one appears to have the support of some of the very same people who oppose criminalizing the first offense. The bill to criminalize first offense introduced this year, it's the fifth time in the last six legislative sessions that it's been introduced. It has never even come up for so much as a committee vote, Mm. and it appears again this year it is not headed for a vote. So is this one of those bills that will have to keep coming up and will eventually get there, or is Wisconsin just going to remain the one state in America that says, we don't want to do this, I guess we'll keep following it to see what happens. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Absolutely. And that's the dinner bell, which means it's time for our dinner party question. This is a weekly segment where we answer questions we most often get asked as journalists at parties or events or when we're out and about. But here's the catch. We have no idea what the question is. There are several envelopes in front of us, and I'm going to pick one from the middle at random. Here we go. We need to get a letter opener up here, I think, don't we? Or is it more fun to just... Just tear it Struggle open. with tearing these open. <laughs> okay. Do you ever get nervous about going on TV? I get this one a lot. The question, you mean? Yeah, this question. I don't. I mean, I've gotten nervous from time to time. I find for me, if I have too much time to think about it, then I get more nervous. Uh, it, when you're doing general assignment and you're doing a live shot out at nighttime, it's actually pretty easy not to think too much about all the people that are watching because it's dark out. You're looking at a light on top of a camera. Maybe you can see the outline of a photographer behind the bright light, but it's easy to just think about the anchors at the station that you're having a conversation with and kind of tune out the fact that there are tens of thousands of people watching. Um, I will get nervous sometimes when I know it's like a big thing, like an election night. I might get nervous at the beginning, or if it's a story that I really care about, uh, then I might get nervous. But I find that when I'm kind of thrust into it and I have to move quickly and I have to think quickly, then I don't get as nervous. You don't have time to be nervous. Right. You just know you want to do a good job and you have to get it done. And sometimes it's easy not to think about all the people that are watching at home. What about you? Do you ever get nervous, Brian? Well, I've been in this business an awful long time, so I I, I can't say that I get nervous much anymore, although I haven't done a lot of live work in recent years because, you know, these investigations, by the time we get on the air, it's scripted. If you threw me out into a spot news situation, I can imagine suddenly feeling the anxiety and the nerves again because you're in that moment. There's no script. The camera's on. Everybody's watching. Well, last year you were election time, remember? And, and, you know, that was, but I didn't get, we, we, the three of us, I don't know, maybe we just have a good rapport that was fun. Like I had a good time doing that. I enjoyed being in the midst of an election night and talking about all of that, of the numbers as they were coming in. I think we prepared well. And but that's you a big ended up out on the scene that night, didn't you? Oh, well, that, and that was, again, that was entertaining because for me, because it ended up being a, the question of why did these thousands of Milwaukee ballots come in late and, and the election commission wasn't letting us in to see certain things. And then we got into the room and then there was, a, they were kicking us out and it, it was dramatic. That was fun. All your favorite things. Yeah. It felt like, you know, sort of investigations mixed with spot news. So that was, that was a good time. What was interesting to me is I've been on television a long time, and you know that there are thousands of people watching at any given time. But as you said, you just see a camera, a lens looking at you and a light. Really, all you see is the photographer behind the camera, and maybe a couple of people on the street are watching you if you're live somewhere. Um, but the one time I used to get nervous, and I, I don't, it doesn't happen anymore, 
But if I was in the studio and there were guests visiting and there would be like six people, like a family of four and two I of their exactly friends. exactly how you feel. Then you could feel the eyes on you. Mm-hmm. It's different than a camera knowing viewers are at home where you can't see them. You can't hear what they're saying. You can trick yourself. But you can see the eyes on you. Then I would, my face would burn. It's kind of like being at State Fair or Summerfest and a crowd gathers. Then you get a little nervous because you feel the presence of people actually watching you do your job and maybe judging you a little bit. And it makes me wonder if that must be different for like Hollywood actors versus Broadway actors, mm. where there's a live audience and you have the immediate response. Is there more nerves to perform in front of a live audience versus an audience that's going to watch you later on? Mm-hmm. I think my, my answer is a little different because I don't know if this counts as being nervous. Throwing up counts. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, when I was pregnant, I did a lot of that, but that was not that's because not of nerves. Not on air? Yeah, not on air. That was like between hits. True story. Came in here once to do a story and uh, had to be running to the bathroom when no one knew I was pregnant. So Mm. you're hiding it on top of that. Um, I have always been very good. And I don't know if this is just part of being an oldest, a perfectionist, but I've always been very good at knowing what is expected and being able to do that. And as a result, for so long, I was so far in my own head about how my voice sounds, about what I'm wearing, how am I coming across. And when you're that far in your own head, it does create nerves and it comes across on TV. And I find that, I don't know if it's just part of this job or as an investigative reporter or just getting older and not caring about that that as much. But as I've become more comfortable with myself and started thinking not just about what is expected of me, but also, okay, what is true to my personality and true to my authenticity that I want to be able to bring across. It's it's less so. So I've never been nervous, oh, to do this specific live hit, but I'll watch myself and say, mm, I wasn't truly comfortable there. And that maybe that's because I was wearing the same Amazon dress that all female newscasters will wear. And so I wasn't comfortable. There's a self-consciousness, not a, yes. not a nervousness. Yeah. I guess that's a, I think that's a or good a self-awareness that makes you. Yeah. Self, self-awareness, self-consciousness, um, just being very aware of, you know, maybe what's typically expected of me instead of what am I doing right now and being mindful of what do I want to say or want to portray versus what's expected and is there a happy medium in between that? I was speaking to a new reporter recently who said to me, you know, the first time I go to a new market, it's like I've never been on TV before. The first time you go somewhere, you get very nervous the first time you appear on the screen. Not that you know anybody really yet in that community. This whole new audience is seeing you. You want to make a good impression in front of all your coworkers and the anchors. And I, I agree with that. I think the first time I went to a new city, started a new station, it was like I'd never done it before. And one year, gosh, when I was in Green Bay, I worked myself into such a state on my first day that I gave myself a migraine. And when I went on air, I couldn't read the teleprompter because it was blurry and I spoke pure gibberish. And the anchors just kind of said, okay, thanks, Jenna. Is this saved anywhere? I don't think so. But oh, they were probably she like, destroyed well, she the doesn't copies. seem very promising. Like, great hire, everybody. I feel everybody. like that's the kind of video that's got to surface at some point, maybe a birthday or I, I don't going think it away exists. video or something. I don't Not think that we want you to go anywhere. away, but, you know, one day. No, but I think, I think a little nervousness is fine. And if we feel it, it 
sometimes it comes across a little, but I think people don't generally notice. My thing when I'm nervous is I'll speak a mile a minute, which actually isn't the worst thing in TV news, especially in a breaking news situation and you're trying to get a lot of information across in your short little hit that you have. Um, But if you ever see me talking really, really fast, it's probably because I'm nervous. I'm the opposite. I slow down because I'm thinking about every word I'm saying, and it's very deliberate, and it doesn't sound conversational. So I have to speed myself up, and I feel like I'm racing, and you hear it back, and it just sounds like a normal person speaking. And if I talk a mile a minute, you all go, oh, that's Brian, (laughs) because that's pretty much me. Uh, Our executive executive producers in the court are nodding right now. she knows. (laughs) All right. If you have a question you want the open record team to answer, please let us know. Shoot us an email at theinvestigators at fox6now.com. That's theinvestigators at fox6now.com. Thank you for listening to Open Record. We would also like to thank the people behind the scenes making this podcast happen. Producer Pete, Dave Machuda, and Leanne Watson. If you enjoy listening, let us know. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts. You said that nice and slow, so you're not nervous. That was good. <laughs> and don't forget to check out Fox 6's other podcast, Definitely Milwaukee, with Carl Deffenbaugh, six-time Emmy-nominated this year, Carl Deffenbaugh. If you want more Open Record, head to our website, fox6now.com. <laughs>